Apostles, chapter 14, and reading from verse 11. Acts 14, verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. It's, it's lovely to see you, and it's wonderful to be back together again. I hope you all had happiness during the break. Uh, as you know, Gillian and I had some excitement, um, escaping only through the flames uh, when the hotel burnt down, but after that, it was relatively plain sailing. Good. Well, let's, um, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we start this new series. Heavenly Father, we, we read in your word that it is granted to people to believe. And we pray that you would do a work in us so that we believe truly and deeply and that our belief would translate into belonging and behaving in a way that brings you praise. It's a blessing to other people and a joy to us, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure, as you know by now this morning, we're starting uh, a new series that's going to run for 10 Sundays. Uh, we're going to be studying the Apostles' Creed, and uh, I know that you know what we're talking about because, of course, we recite it together, don't we, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
It's going to be a challenging series because we're not uh, taking a particular Bible book or section of a book and working our way through it, and we're not even going to do a deep dive into the particular passage that's been read before the sermon on Sunday morning. That is our normal practice, and it will be our normal practice in the years to come, God willing. But uh, in this series, we're exploring a theme or a topic, and that means we're working across the Bible in order to see what the Bible as a whole has got to say about it. Now, why are we doing this? Well, let's start with uh, an illustration. Uh, If you're anything like me, uh, you might perhaps have put on a couple of extra pounds over the Christmas festivities. Now, uh, imagine for a moment that uh, in order to help us get back in shape, Raymond leaps up and proposes that we all go on a church family hike. Uh, That's the sort of thing Raymond... You're thinking of that, are you, Raymond, this morning? No. Um, But it's going to be in a part of the country we've never been to before. In order to do that safely and successfully, we would need two different kinds of map. Uh, We would need a large-scale map showing all of the little details along the route, specific obstacles we might encounter, streams, rivers we might have to cross, hills we might have to climb, particular landmarks to look out for, and uh, perhaps also places where we might get a little bit of refreshment along the way. We would definitely need a map like that giving us all that detailed information. But before we even set out, we'd also need a small-scale map. We'd need a map showing us very clearly the path that will take us most directly from the start to the finish. Wouldn't have all the details of the first map. It would simply be showing us which path is going to take us safely and securely from start to finish. Now, If life is a journey, then the Bible is the large-scale map with all the details in it. Uh, Depending on the particular translation you've got in your hand, your Bible has got approximately three-quarters of a million words in it. And it shows us all of the uh, challenges we might have to face on our journey through life and how we might deal with them. But the Apostles' Creed is the small-scale map, and it enables us to see the main road at a glance. The Apostles' Creed is obviously not three-quarters of a million words long. It's only 110 words long. So it's a summary of the main points of Christian belief, not giving us all the details, but it's giving us the essentials we need to know so we don't lose our way. Now, I should point out that the title, the Apostles' Creed, does not mean that the creed was written by the apostles. Uh, There's a lovely legend that uh, Peter wrote the first sentence and John wrote the second sentence and James wrote the third sentence and so on. But uh, the creed wasn't written by the apostles. No, it's a summary 
of the apostles' teaching about what? Well, about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's a summary of what Christians believe about the Trinity. Now, that is significant because I'm sure you'll remember that Jesus said we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So obviously the creed is an extremely important and precious resource that can help us do that. It first appeared in its current form uh, in the second century. So Christians have been reciting the Apostles' Creed for 1,800 years at least. In the beginning, it wasn't actually called the creed. It was called the rule of faith. And that's because unless I believe these things, I'm not actually a Christian in the New Testament sense. So uh, it's my hope and my prayer that this series will give you confidence in your Christian journey. Um, I'm hoping that it's going to give you what you need in order to complete your Christian journey safely and securely without getting lost. And you can tell me at the end whether it's done it for you or not. This morning, we're just thinking about the very first statement. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I do hope you're going to be strengthened and uh, comforted by it. We're going to look at it under four headings. And the first is, what do we mean by I believe? Now, we could spend the whole morning on it. Uh, We're not going to. But it's important for us to be clear what we mean when, as Christians, we say, I believe. Now, you know that uh, large numbers of people today are saying, I don't believe. Now, that's not because of a lack of evidence. Uh, The evidence is more freely accessible today than it's ever been before. And there isn't really one simple explanation for it. But perhaps it's just worth pointing out that I think it has to do with our fascination with pleasure and the explosion of um, intrusive screen time, which is drowning people in unbelief. Uh, And I don't need to tell you today that you'll probably get more respect, particularly in Western culture, if you say, I'm an atheist, than if you say, well, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So having said that... I also need to remind you that numbers are not the test of truth. I hope you know that. Uh, You might be the only believer in your place of work, or the only believer in your family, or the only believer in the university, or wherever it is, and you could still be right, because numbers are not the test. So why is it that we stand up and say, I believe? I hope you don't stand up and say, I believe, because, you know, I just feel that God is real. I hope you don't do that, because a feeling is never going to sustain you on your journey. 
And I hope you don't stand up and say, I believe, because it's a tradition, and you're kind of a traditional sort of a person. After all, everybody else is doing it in church, and you might perhaps feel a little bit awkward when other people leap up and say, I believe, and you stay glued to your seat. Now, I hope that you stand up and say, I believe in God because the evidence is excellent. And I've been persuaded by the evidence. God has confronted me, what is the evidence, with creation, with his dealings with humanity over the centuries, over the millennia, actually, and supremely with his son. And the evidence has persuaded me. And I hope you won't be unsettled uh, when people say, well, where is the evidence for God? Because that's not the question. There's plenty of evidence. And when people say that to you, you should be asking them, well, what are you doing with the evidence for God? Perhaps that's a good moment to point out that evidence will never overcome obstinance. Uh, There are plenty of obstinate people, aren't there, in the world? And the Bible gives us lots of examples of people who suppress the evidence in order to justify a lifestyle of disobedience. Now, we'll try and help people like that. In the end, we might not be able to. So, friends, when we say, I believe, what we're saying is, I've been persuaded by the evidence, but so what? So what? Very important, I think, for us to be clear about this. See, I could say... um, I believe in renewable energy, meaning that I I like the idea of renewable energy, uh, especially if it's going to put an end to this tiresome load shedding. I've been persuaded by the evidence that it's a good thing. But you see, renewable energy isn't going to shape my relationships or my choices. It's not going to inform my attitude to life and death. But I do believe Renewable energy is a good idea. It's definitely a category in my thinking. But when I say I believe in God, I'm saying much more than that God is simply a category in my thinking or that I think God is a jolly good idea. No, when I say I believe in God, what I'm actually saying is he is the driving force in my life. I'm building my life on his character and on his promises. Um, I'm ordering my relationships and my choices according to his word. And God has utterly transformed my attitude to life and death. Now, friends, that is what a Christian means when he or she says, I believe. That is what it means to be a Christian. Well, then the second question this morning is, why is it that I believe? That's our second heading. Why is it that I believe? There's something uh, very helpful, actually, and rather brilliant in the way that the creed is written. I don't know whether you've ever noticed it before. I think I hadn't really grasped this until I was preparing this talk. But there is something in the way that the creed is written that will help you ask yourself the question... How can I say 
that I believe in God when no one else in my family believes in God. None of my friends believe in God. They think I'm really rather silly. And how can I say I believe in God sincerely and sensibly when the world says, well, you know, all religions are essentially the same. Uh, The God of the Bible, Allah, uh, Krishna, Buddha, whatever, uh, they're all essentially the same. Well, friends, we don't believe that. And the creed helps us with this because the creed says, are you listening? I believe in God the Father. Now, that is extremely helpful because it means you don't need to memorize clever philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Um, Over the centuries, scholars and philosophers have constructed a number of tremendous arguments proving the existence of God in different ways. Those arguments have terrifying names. We're not going to look at them this morning. It's uh, unfortunate for the students at college. They do have to memorize the names in order to pass the exams, but that's not our struggle. The creed begins quite simply with, I believe in God the Father. Now, why does it begin like that? Why? Well, you see, it's because we meet God as the Father when we come to the Son. See, it's when we come to Jesus that we discover who God really is. Now, there are exceptions. Um, You know, lots of people start their spiritual journey by saying to themselves, you know what, I I look at Table Mountain, yep, there must be a maker, there's got to be a creator. And I'm a sinful person, I know that I am. Uh, So there's this great God, and, and I'm sinful. And that might cause those people to cry out to God for mercy. And God might hear that prayer because they're seeking And you'll remember that Jesus says, those who seek God will find him. But friends, in the end, the reason that we believe in God is because he's come into our world in the person of his son. And we've realized who Jesus is. We've realized what he's done. And by believing in him, we've been brought into the family of God. When I was at Cambridge training for the university boat race, there was one particular member of our crew who wasn't a Christian. And because he lived a distinctively Christian life, he was mercilessly teased and made fun of by the rest of the crew members. And although I wasn't a Christian at the time, I did feel sorry for him. I did my best to befriend him. And at the end of term, this young man invited me to go and spend a week at home with his family. Well, his family lived in this marvellous mansion um, out in the Berkshire countryside, and uh, they made me feel really, really welcome. Uh, My bedroom was three times the size of my bedroom at home. Uh, The meals were absolutely tremendous, and they treated me just like a member of the family. And the point is, you see, that I was welcomed into that family because of the Son. Do you see? And in the same way, it's by coming to the Son that you come into the family of God. 
And that's why the creed begins, I believe in God the Father. And uh, the New Testament tells us, doesn't it, in John chapter 1, which, by the way, we're going to be looking at in our home groups, that it's those who receive the Son, Jesus Christ, who become the adopted children of God. So you come to the Father through the Son, and you come to the Father only through the Son. And it's your response to Jesus which opens the door into God's family. And when you kneel before Jesus and you receive his forgiveness and his acceptance, in that moment, God becomes your Father, Jesus becomes your Lord and your Saviour, and the Holy Spirit becomes your guide for life. So we have to deal with Jesus. Now, friends, what this means is that when you say to yourself, as I know everybody does from time to time, why do I believe in God? What you have to say to yourself is, it's because I believe in God the Father. You see, I, I don't just believe he's the creator, although I do believe that. And I don't just believe he's the judge, although I believe that as well. But um, I believe in God as the Father because, because I've done business with his son. And when somebody says to you, and people will say this to you this year, what do you believe? Well, friends, it's not really good enough to say, well, I believe in God. It's better to say, I believe in God the Father, because that will take the conversation in an altogether more helpful direction. And you can go on to say, I believe in God the Father because God the Son has come into our world. And friends, I do hope that that's going to comfort you and strengthen you because it means, you see, there's a logic to your faith. Um, it means you're not a dreamer um, or a mystic or a weirdo. There's a logic to this. And I hope very much that it's going to help you in your witness. Because today, when somebody says, I believe in G-O-D, well, it can mean practically anything, can't it? But the phrase, God the Father, does mean something very specific. And it invites people to explore what it means and why you believe it. So, friends, are you with me so far? When we say, I believe, we mean that the evidence has persuaded us and brought us to faith and that we're building our lives on his character and his promises. Why is it that I believe? Well, I believe in God as my father because of Jesus the Son. Then thirdly, next heading. Can this God be trusted? Important question. The creed begins, I believe in God the Father. Now, what's the next word? Almighty. Yes, thank you, Brenda. You see, once you've established that God is your Father, your good and perfect Father 
perfect in his fatherly character, what's the next word you would like to put after that? Because frankly, there are so many possibilities, aren't there? Um, you could say, well, I believe in God the Father loving. Uh, or I believe in God the Father wise. Or patient. Or gracious. One writer puts it like this. He says, what is the most fundamental attribute of God? How difficult it is to rank them, he says, because they all belong together. But there is one that stands out, and that is his rule, his lordship, that he is almighty. Well, I find that very helpful, because it tells me straight away that everything is always under his control. So, friends, once you've locked in that God is your Father, it's vital that you also know he's almighty, isn't it? Because there's no hope for us, is there, if there is a loving Father, but he's actually stuck for answers when things get difficult. That's not much help, is it? And equally, it doesn't help if God is almighty, but he doesn't really care what happens to us? So it's bringing together the Father and the Almighty, the love and the power that gives you and I hope. And this isn't just wishful thinking, is it? Because, of course, we know that in the Lord Jesus we see perfect love and complete control brought together. Having said that, we also need to know that when we say that God is almighty, we're not saying that God can do anything at all. Because the wonderful thing about God is that unlike us, he can't be inconsistent. Uh, for example, he can't lie, he can't sin, uh, he can't deny his character, he can't cease to exist. There are certain things that God cannot do uh, the fact that God is almighty doesn't mean God can do anything at all. And um, the other thing we need to remember is that when we say that God is both Father and almighty, it does raise big questions, doesn't it, about why there is still so much evil in our world. That is a very real question, um, and there are no easy answers to it. But friends, as Christians, as Christians, what you and I have to do, and I hope you're with me in this, is that we have to say that underneath his love and underneath his power, those two qualities that we've been thinking about, there may be things happening in this world which are actually beyond our finite human understanding. We can't explain them. That doesn't, of course, mean that there isn't an explanation but it's actually beyond our ability to grasp. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we don't drop the fatherhood, the love, and we don't drop the control. But we say to ourselves, actually, God's, God's wisdom, God's plan, those things are actually beyond us. Very interesting, you know, that um, I'm sure some of you have read the book of Job, 
In the book of Job, there are 31 references to God as almighty. I find that very interesting because, as I'm sure you know, Job has an extremely rough ride. Nobody has a harder time than Job in the Old Testament. But one of the last things that Job says to God towards the end of the book is no plan of yours can be stopped or blocked or thwarted. In other words, at the end of a very, very painful road of suffering, Job can say to God, I have now come to the point where I realize in a way I never did before that you, God, are amazing. It's an astonishing thought, isn't it? And you and I need to think about this, you see, because we're living in a world that has become increasingly superficial. And large swathes of the church around the world have become increasingly superficial. So you and I need to think very carefully about what it means if God is both Father and the Almighty. Somebody who's done a great deal of thinking about this is the Christian author Jerry Bridges, and he's written a marvellous book called Trusting God. And he's been thinking about this, and here's what he has to say. I hope it might appear on the screen. He writes, Nothing in creation stands or acts independently of the Lord's will. The laws of nature are nothing more than the physical expression, listen to this, of the steady will of Christ. The law of gravity operates with unceasing certainty because Christ continually wills it to operate. The chair I'm sitting on while I write these words holds together because the atoms and molecules in the wood are held together by his will. The stars continue in their course because he keeps them. The Bible teaches that God sustains us. He gives us our life and breath and everything else. He supplies our food. Our times are in his hands. Every breath we breathe is a gift from God. Every bite of food we eat is given to us by him. Every day we live is determined by him. He has not left us to our own devices or the whims of nature or the malevolent acts of other people. No, he constantly sustains, provides and cares for us every moment of every day. Did your car break down when you could least afford the repairs. The God who controls the stars in their courses, controls the nuts and bolts and everything else in your car. He is perfectly loving, and however strange it may seem, he's always in control of everything. Well, that's quite a thought, isn't it? That is quite a thought. God can be trusted. Lastly, very quickly, last heading, why are we here? Why are we here? 
The creed goes on to say that our Father, the Almighty, is the maker of heaven and earth. Of course, it's only because he's almighty that he could do that. Couldn't do it otherwise. Some of you will know that there are only three possible explanations for the existence of the universe. Some people say that the universe is eternal. It's always been there. Other people say it's self-generated. In other words, it made itself. And a third group say... It's been created. Those are the only three options I'm aware of for the existence of the universe. Now, scripture and science both say it's not, sorry, it's that it's um, not eternal. They both say it had a beginning. Science and scripture agree with one another about that. Scripture and common sense say that it's not self-made. You don't just make yourself, do you? And so you see, a created universe fits the facts. But when we stand up and we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we're not simply saying that we believe God created the universe. We are saying that. We're saying more than that. Because the first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to explain that God made everything in between as well, including us. In other words, that phrase, heaven and earth, in the Bible, it's it's a sort of um, figure of speech, meaning everything. He made the lot. He made us, that's why we're here, But more than that, God made us in his image. That means there is something godlike in you and even in me. Now, friends, I hope we're clear about this. We cannot say that about Barry the bulldog or Gary the goldfish. You know, Barry and Gary might be marvelous pets. Uh, We love them. God made them, yes he did. But God did not make dogs or fish or anything else in his image, only us. Now why did God do that? Why? Why? As we close, please will you take up your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 17. Ian read from Acts 14. There's lots in there for you to think about. Please turn to Acts 17, and we're going to read from verse 24. This is the Apostle Paul. He's addressing very, very religious people. But these people are ignorant of the God of the Bible. They don't believe in him. They don't know anything about him, actually. So what Paul says here is a terrific starting point for a gospel conversation. Can we all see verse 24 in our Bibles? The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men 
life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. So he determined that you and I should live in Cape Town and be here this morning. Why did God do that? Verse 27. God did this so that men and women would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So have you got it? God made the heavens and the earth so that you and I, who bear his image, would seek him, reach out for him, and find him. Now, friends, that's why we're here. That's actually the purpose of your life and mine. So can I ask this morning, have you found him? I do hope you have, because that's the purpose of your life. There isn't another one. And the rest of the creed is going to show us what that means. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for coming to us in the person of your Son, for the privilege of inviting people like us who are so very small and temporary to become your children. We thank you for your almightiness, your wisdom, and all your attributes which are beyond our comprehension. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us the great privilege of knowing you and the great joy of being able to say, we believe. And the great mission of helping others to do the same. And so we pray that the things we've been thinking about today would impact us more and more and that you would cause these things to be lived out in our lives for your honour and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to do something uh, a little different now. Um, Who can tell me what a catechism is? Come on, you students, there's bound to be a question on this, this term. What is a catechism? Excellent, yes, it's, it's a summary of the essentials of the Christian faith posed in a question-and-answer format for instruction purposes. That's what a catechism is, if you like. That's the difference, in a sense, between the catechism, which is that, and the creed, which is us standing and saying what we believe. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the most famous. Um, It was written in 1563 at the command of a guy called 
Elector, Elector Frederick. Sounds like something out of Star Wars, doesn't it? Um, anyway, he commissioned it in 1563. And um, the questions and answers in his catechism are arranged in such a way as to be used on 52 Sundays through the year. So that each Sunday, the church gathers and you look at one of these questions and answers and you are edified. Now, the reason we're doing this is going to become clear when Seb puts this particular question up on the screen. Just looking at one question this morning, don't panic. I'm just going to read it through and I want you to try and pick up the connections in the answer with the creed and the ideas we've been thinking about this morning. Okay, you with me? Question. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Answer. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. Isn't that lovely? I'm going to make sure you get that on the WhatsApp group this week. But for now, let's stand and say it. Back up on the screen, please, Seb. Yes, it'll need to be there. We haven't memorized it yet. There we are. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth together? that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him... I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. Amen. Amen.
Well, as beautiful as that was, the catechism, I'm sure we can all be grateful that we won't have a test on this after the service over coffee. Um, but I just think those words are really beautiful. Willing to do so as Father, able to do 